Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. We're here today on Miranda Warnings with Terry Gerstein, director of the State and Local Law Enforcement Project at Harvard Labor and Work Life Program. Welcome, Terry. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to join today. It's great to have you. Terry was previously the Labor Bureau Chief for the New York State Attorney General and Deputy Commissioner of the New York State Department of Labor. She's here to talk today about the gig economy. She's spoke at a panel at the New York State Bar Association's annual meeting on legal issues related to the gig economy, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Terry, just for starters, tell me, what, what does a gig economy mean? What is that? Well, that was actually one of the first questions we discussed on our panel was, you know, what's the right terminology and what's the size of this working population and this, you know, the employers included in the or companies included in the gig economy. And we talked about how, you know, people used to call it the sharing economy, which feels sort of sounds sort of very benign. Um the, you know, I think that sometimes calling it the platform-based economy is what people think of when people get jobs through a platform is what they think of as the gig mm. economy. And then some people use it a little bit more expansively to refer to um, sort of non-permanent, precarious work where people kind of go from job to job. Um, so depending upon you know, which definition you use or which framing you use, um, you also get to different numbers about it. Um, and the numbers vary really wildly. Um, one of the numbers that came up in our panel was that, you know, if you're talking just about platform-based workers, that that's somewhere oh, just over a million. And when you say platform-based, platform that's meaning like, uh, like, like Uber apps, or Like Uber, Lyft, Lyft Handy, or... people that you, you know, that obtain work mediated through an app or, right. you know, a right. platform. See, I always thought of the gig economy. I mean, that's an old word that would right. be like apply to musicians. So right. a musician would go play a gig right and get 20 bucks or whatever um and so they were kind of independent contractors they worked for themselves or they would do a gig at a at a bar or something like that and so that's now but applied to not musicians but to people that are driving cars people that are delivering food people that are doing all sorts of projects and people who are really making all of their living in many cases from this kind of work and who are doing, um, you know, pretty close to full-time work or if not far more than full-time work in many cases and who really are economically dependent upon that company for their basic income. So it's it's a very different picture from sort of people's old, right. you know, concepts of what a gig would so be. So you're, you know, you said the numbers vary depending on what your definition is, but let's say, let's use a broad definition. Let's say anybody that is doing work, they're not considered uh, an employee of a company. They're considered to be an independent contractor through one of these platforms or through some other uh, means. How, how potentially broad is, is the number of uh, people in the United States that are employed at least in some part by the gig economy. 
The largest percentage that I've seen is somewhere in the low 30s, which honestly seems high to 30%. me. 30%? Yeah, something like that, which seems high to me. But I think that that's, this is part of you know the data that really needs to be collected in a more reliable way is like we do need to have a more clear definition of who we're talking about because right. so much work is precarious now. And yet- you know, what What are we talking about? We're talking about people who are not full-time employees who are either independent contractors or working, you know, working and being paid in cash off the books or people who are working through these platforms or people working in temp agencies, which is also a growth industry. Like, are they gig employees? So I think that we all really have to do it would be very helpful to have more clear definitions and much better data, which would help also for, you know, for all kinds of policy making. And so... As this is growing, and it's certainly whatever the number is, we know that in recent years it is growing in large part because of the internet and apps and cell phones where people can uh, use their uh, electronic devices to connect with someone that's going to provide a service that we never had before. And we're seeing issues where the the people that are employed in this uh, in these jobs are being taken advantage of uh, in some instances because they're not technically considered employees. So then if they're not employees, the rules that protect employees are not in place. So tell us a little bit about that and the problems that we're seeing in that regard. So all of our, basically all of our workplace laws, whether you're talking about minimum wage and overtime or the right to organize and collectively bargain, the right to safety and health, anti-discrimination, unemployment insurance, workers' comp, basically all of our laws protect employees and they do not protect independent contractors. Um, but what's very important is that courts are extremely clear that it's not an employer's designation of someone as an independent contractor that is dispositive. So an employer can write a contract that says you're an independent contractor and tell a worker to wear a t-shirt that says independent contractor and a button that says independent contractor and a hat that says it doesn't matter. What matters is the real relationship Mm. um, between the company and the worker. And um, under different laws, there are different tests for whether someone is an employee or independent contractor. Um, Most of the tests look at a multitude of factors and they say no one factor is dispositive. So it's a little bit hard. Um, That makes it a little bit difficult that there's not um, a clear test. um, So what you're saying is that if if I'm a business and I'm hiring people to do work for my business and I I decide I'm just going to call them independent contractors, that's not enough. No, right? no. Under I, the law, they actually right. look at what the facts are. Right. right. And 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 to be clear, an independent contractor, the concept is that this person is really running their own business, right? And their sure. own small business. And so the classic example that people give is a plumber, right? If a movie theater calls a plumber to fix the toilet, like that's probably an independent contractor, not an employee of the movie theater because the movie theater's business is running movie theaters and the plumber is just coming right. in to do one job. But if that plumber works for a plumbing company, probably that plumber is an employee and is not running their own plumbing business. And the plumbing, but, right. you know, plumbing through a plumbing app and gets sent out on various right. jobs and the plumbing app is getting the money. Well, that that right. gets to the test that um, California just adopted by legislation, AB5. So this is a um, new test. There's a new, well, okay. it's a test that actually people describe it as new, but in fact, Massachusetts has had it for years for its wage and hour laws. New Jersey's had it for years for wage and hour and unemployment laws. 
And in fact, in New York, we have the ABC test for the construction industry and for certain transportation of goods industry. So it's not brand new. Okay. But um, in 2018, the California Supreme Court adopted this test, the ABC test. And then the California legislature passed a law, AB5, codifying it. And it basically creates a much simpler test for whether someone's an employee or independent contractor. And what it is, is it presumes employment status. So you're presumed to be an employee unless three factors are satisfied. Hmm. And one of those factors, is, the B factor, is what we're talking about now. Like, what's the core nature of your business, right? Hmm. If you're, you know, in, in its cases on on this issue, Uber and you know its peers argue that their business is technology, or it, their business is not driving. It's not they're not in the transportation business. Um, but I think for you know just like from a common sense perspective of like ordinary people, that really doesn't make any sense. Um, people don't reach out to Uber because they need IT help. They reach out to Uber because they need a ride. Right. Right. Um, so under the so the ABC, ABC test is a three part test, and you have to in order to be to get out of the presumption that right. you're an employee, you have to meet all three. Yes, you have or to meet all three. one out of three or two all you have three. To meet all three. And what are the three standards? So the three one of them is that the person has to be free from the control and direction of the hiring entity in connection with the performance of the work. So they're working independently, not being controlled. The second one is what we just talked about that the person has to perform work outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. And then the third one is that the person is customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business as the same nature as that involved in the work performed. So let's take for the, the one of the most common examples, which would be an Uber driver or a Lyft driver. So the first one, are they operating independently? I get, um, would they, uh, court- I mean, they can pick their hours, they can well, do, the, decide this- whether to take a take a ride or not take a ride right um i mean this is something that has been litigated in different places and i think that a lot of people who are um labor and employment lawyers or particularly if you know depending on whether they're on the employee or management side but i think uh, there are um there have been cases looking at those factors of control and you know who sets the fare uber sets the fare Hmm. who who decides how much workers get paid? You know, there's all you know. Uber can deactivate people. You can't. Um, so there, are, there are various kinds. If you look at the cases, there are various yeah. kinds of factors. So you're considered. saying so just with the first factor, the A, um, not necessarily independent. Uh, you, you were. I you mean, were, this is hot, hot, hotly contested. I will say that within New York, there are two decisions by the Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board, one from 2018 and one from 2019, both looking at Uber specifically, and both of them found that the drivers were employees applying the test in New York. I see. Um, and they found that the language of it, I think, is is pretty interesting because they basically found like this isn't you know, a tech company. This is just... Um, but that would go to the second one, wouldn't it? The, whether it's a tech company or, or a driving company, that would go to outside the, the, the scope of the right. of the business, right. right? So I was just talking about the... But fir- they did also look at the... They did also look at the control right. factors, for sure. So under the control factors in New York State, they would be considered an employee. Under the unemployment insurance law. Okay. Yes. And then we go to the next... Fa- so... So then the next factor is outside of the scope of the the business, and it's clearly not. I mean, that's the only thing that they do is, right? Right, 
Right. I mean, what the Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board said was that the technology replaces the duties of an employee dispatcher to dispatch the request and that the business is similar to more traditional car service companies. Right. And that just because you're doing something through an app, it's basically just like the app is replacing the person with a phone in an office. Exactly. Right. right. So if you would, you would have to call up for, for right. it, it doesn't change the nature of what you're doing. Right. So under this ABC test uh, in New York, uh, uh, an Uber driver would be considered an employee of Uber. I mean, I'm I'm not according to not, our analysis. Not, not, not offering legal advice here, but no, but uh, you I'm know, just, I mean, this is the issue that's being contested. My personal, you know, I would argue it's still up in the air. Yes, it's still up in the air, and in California, where AB five passed, um, I mean, it's not up in the air because the unemployment in, in the unemployment context, right? Right. Um, and in California, this is being litigated, and Uber is claiming that AB5 doesn't apply to them. But um, so in New York, then people that are Uber drivers are in, are at the well, moment they, considered if they apply for if they apply for unemployment insurance, they should be eligible. Um, and you know, in terms of the other laws, those determinations haven't been made yet. But mm. the other laws, the other tests under the other laws, do look at similar factors. So you could try. You could be an Uber driver for a couple of weeks, and then stop doing it and get unemployment insurance? Well, in order to have unemployment insurance, there's other requirements as well okay. in terms of how long you have to have been employed. And, I'm not looking for an angle right, here. I right, mean, I just right, want, right, yeah. right. There's other requirements <laughs> too. I mean, that could be true if you if you work for, you know, five years from for one place and then you go and work in like a store for four weeks and you um, are discharged, you might still be eligible for unemployment because you have this longer work history going farther back. Right. So and and you know there's uh, there's other issues. I know it's important in in New York. Um, the minimum wage issue is something that's come up substantially. Sometimes we have drivers that are you know working right. whatever around the clock, not even making minimum wage. Um, how does that uh, how does that apply? Are are uh, you know drivers and other members of the gig economy are they entitled to uh, have minimum wage laws apply to them? Well, a lot of it, again, depends on this issue of whether they're properly classified as independent contractors. Yeah. And so if they are employees, then they're entitled to minimum wage and overtime and all of the laws that protect employees. But if they're not, they're not. And if a court determines that they're not, then they're not. I will note that the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission, um, which doesn't have the authority to determine whether their employees are independent contractors, but does have the ability to set fares. And um, the t TLC, Taxi and Limousine Commission for short, they set a minimum pay standard for drivers um, a couple, about a year or two ago, um, to make it equivalent to the minimum wage plus coverage of for costs of their expenses, as well as coverage for some limited um, paid sick leave time. Um, so in New York City, in the five boroughs, there now is a pay standard for drivers. And some other cities like Seattle, for example, are looking at doing something similar. But but I sh we should be clear, though, that this issue of misclassification isn't just limited to um, the gig economy, you know, when we talk right. about it, to so like the platform-based economy, that the issue of workers being treated as independent contractors, this exists in a lot of different um, a lot of different industries. And for example, the construction industry, hmm. um, for many years, there was a lot of use of 1099s um, instead of W-2s. 1099s are the tax forms that are given to independent contractors, W-2s to employees. 
Um, and then, of course, if you're getting a 1099, you're not getting whatever right. you know health benefits that right. might go to an employee. You're not getting retirement benefits. Right. Um, the employer is not subject to all the other regulations that apply to employees. Right. And there's been a lot of efforts over the past decade and a half to really address this. And a number of states have formed misclassification task forces. Um, Washington, D.C., the AG's office recently commissioned some economists to do a study of misclassification, the cost evasion of employers who misclassify workers in the construction industry. Um, And they found that employers save or evade, depending on how you frame it, right? Um, Anywhere from, I think, 16 to around 48 or so percent um, by misclassifying workers. And a recent study in Washington state that came out of the Harvard Labor and Work Life Program found that employers save about 30 percent by misclassifying workers. And what that means, that that sort of demonstrates it's, it's really bad for workers when they're misclassified as independent contractors, but it's also bad for competitors because if you're an, an employer who's trying to follow the law and classify people properly, like you're at a severe disadvantage. And that's been a big problem in the construction industry because an, an honest contractor, when they're bidding on a job against someone who is cheating on all these laws, they're at a severe disadvantage. And they can underbid. Exactly. And so it doesn't just affect the worker. Uh, it affects competitors that are that are abiding right. by the law. Right. So let's say in New York, for example, who is who would be the oversight body in New York that would be looking into enforcing whether someone is uh, a company is categorizing someone improperly as an independent contractor? Would it be the Department of Labor? Would it be Department of Taxation? There's Which an, would it be? There's a number of different agencies that have responsibility See, for this. That's always a problem when it's a number. It's right. Uh, because then if multiple are responsible, then sometimes there's not one that's accountable. Right. I mean, in in New York State, um, these agencies do work very closely together. And um, when I was a deputy commissioner in the State Department of Labor, which was a while ago, um, there was a misclassification task force formed. And so there was there's been more over the last decade or so more coordination among these agencies, more cross referrals, um, trying to sort of harmonize their work as much as possible. But it is the Department of Labor oversees Um, minimum wage and overtime enforcement, as well as administering the unemployment insurance system and enforcing that law. The Workers' Comp Board enforces the Workers' Comp Law. Mm. um, And the the Department of Tax and Finance um, enforces the tax laws. Um, And then you also have at the city agency... Um, at the city level. But it would be, it seems to me it's very difficult for, let's say, the Department of Taxation if someone says, we have, you know, we're a business and we've got 20 employees and we also hired an independent contractor or two or three to do something. Um, I mean, that seems like an enormous task for the Department of Taxation to go in and investigate that. So let's say, for example, I'm a law firm and I have 70 employees, but I also, throughout the course of the year, I've hired a website developer to develop my firm website. Um, So they're bona fide independent contractor, they're not an employee, and I would indicate that they're not an employee. So it would seem to me it would be difficult for Department of Taxation to really kind of get down in the weeds on that, especially when you have a business that uh, is deliberately trying to avoid uh, including someone as an employee? Um, I think that the government enforcement agencies tend to try to focus on the employers or businesses that have 
you know, an entire business model where they really have a lot of people who are being misclassified, mm. um, like janitorial companies um, that will just hire everyone as an independent contractor. Right. Like their or, whole business enterprise right, is based upon right, this. Right. I, I once spoke to um, someone who worked in Washington State, and they had a really interesting way that they identified um, misclassified workers in the transportation industry, which is they looked at like trucking companies and moving companies, and they looked at how many vehicles they had um, licensed, and then they compared that with how many employees they had listed. And if you have like a bazillion vehicles licensed and like two receptionists, well, right. that's a good red flag. So, so that's one way is I think really focusing on those larger um, employers where there are really large numbers of people misclassified. I think they get a lot of information also from community organizations and unions and from worker complaints. And then also remember that unemployment insurance and workers comp, you have claimants, you have people who are discharged or who are injured on the job and go and um, file for workers comp or file for unemployment insurance. And so that's another way that these issues come to light as someone applies for UI. And as a result of that, there's an investigation. There's first a determination that yes, this person should be treated as an employee. But then after that, the company has to go back and treat all similarly situated employee workers as employees right. as well. So there's multiple ways. There's like intentional targeting and proactive investigation in problem industries combined with working with community organizations and stakeholders combined with the reactive process of getting complaints right. or getting claims in these benefit programs. And we're seeing other issues too as a result of uh, these this type of uh, in a labor setting is that uh, that's affecting people that aren't necessarily even involved, not the workers, but just uh, average citizens. So, for example, I know like Amazon f has hires drivers as in the supposedly independent contractors to deliver uh, packages, etc. Um, and they're, you know, they've got this, you know, two-day delivery, uh, which puts a lot of pressure on drivers to to you know get there quickly. And there's accidents for example and then when someone gets involved in an accident when you have that many drivers you're going to have even if they're great drivers you're still going to have accidents um, the person that's involved in the accident um, is you know brings a claim for example uh, and, they, and Amazon will say well they're independent contractors we you can't sue us uh, they're independent contractors you can sue their insurance if they have it um, but it's not up to Amazon to pay for this, you know, uh, you know, auto injury that you've now sustained as a result of this. Absolutely. There was a case just last week or the week before involving Uber in Rhode Island where it was a personal injury case and exactly that happened. The person who was injured tried to sue Uber. Uber said, we're just a transportation, we're just a, um, a tech company, we're not transportation, right. this is an independent contractor. And a federal judge actually um, denied summary judgment to Uber and the case is going forward um, and found there was a material dispute of fact. But it just, this demonstrates the way that it's sort of like a devolution of risk from the larger upchain entity that is really more financially and organizationally and in every way better able to bear it and a devolution of risk to these like ordinary people who are driving in their cars and their cars that they have bought specifically for this purpose and you know that they're paying loans on and you know this should really I mean pilots don't have to buy their airplanes right so you know no, 
it's it's kind of amazing that you have this entire stock fleet of cars that like the company that's dispatching them doesn't have to pay any of the expenses related to operating them. Right. But the devolution of risk, I do think that, you know, there are all kinds of situations where putting workers in worse situations and and degrading working conditions has really bad sort of ancillary societal consequences beyond the impact on the, the workers themselves. And I think this is a, a perfect example of that. Right. But, uh, you know, but I can get somewhere for like a dollar cheaper. So right. I guess that makes it okay. Right. Well, that's right. the thing I find so sad about it is that um, these really, these these companies do really create services that people want and need and appreciate and, you know, we're in New York City right now. There are elderly people or, you know, there are people who can get around because of Uber and Lyft in ways that might have been more difficult with our, you know, with the subway, for example, um, or people who getting groceries delivered through Instacart really makes a big difference. So these companies, they could choose a high road. They could like provide this awesome, innovative service and at the same time create like great jobs and right. so that's what one of the things that just feels so but then sad they wouldn't be making it. billions of dollars on the backs of these workers well they would be making less but right. i do believe right. that it's possible to operate innovative businesses both in a way that is good for workers and profitably yes let's hope so yes uh, so l l how do we get there? Um, is there, you talked about some legislation that in California, the ABC legislation, is there anything in New York that we can expect that might help move us along in the right direction? Well, in New York, this issue is being very hotly discussed right now. Um, there was, there were some legislative proposals or there was a legislative proposal last year. Um, but I think right now there's a number of unions and advocacy groups that, um, I believe are working on some kind of proposal. Um, they certainly were last year. Um, the governor has announced a task force to look at this issue. Um, and I don't know any more details about that, but I think there is a lot of real interest in doing something about this at this point. Right. So I'm very interested in this, of course, because uh, at Miranda Warnings, they consider me to be an independent contractor and they, they pay me in, in Miranda Warnings hats. Um, and so you got to have a lot of hats. I got a lot of hats and I, the, I only get 20% of the tips. Uh, so it's really, uh, I think, a little troublesome. Uh, so I appreciate your time here today, Terry. I appreciate the work that you've done on the panel for the New York State Bar Association, talking about uh, the gig economy. We have a feature on Miranda Warnings called Music Book or Movie, uh, where you can talk about something related to this topic or anything that's important to you. So um, I, I am pushing back at the premise a little bit. One okay. is I want to add a category, which oh, is right. theater. Yeah. Um, and I also want to give two music, answers. Music, book, or movie. Yeah, that would Yeah, theater. Because we, we we're right theater. here. We're, we're yeah, near Broadway. <clears throat> it's an so, artistic, any artistic performance. Okay. So my, my younger son, who's 14, is... He's not even a fan of Broadway. He is a student of Broadway. He loves going to... We live in New York City. He loves going to Broadway shows. Okay. Um, and one show that um, we've all fallen in love with in our family is called Hadestown, which won the Tony this past... Hadestown. Hadestown this past year. And it's incredibly beautiful and beautifully performed and visually beautiful. And it also has some really resonant themes. It's the story of Orpheus and um, Eurydice. Um, the Greek myth <clears throat> and 
it's it's really beautifully done, um, and it's just a beautiful love story, but and a sad story. But it also has some really um, timely themes like um, climate change and authoritarianism, and you know oppression of workers and sort of people coming together and standing up. Um, and so that's the that's one that I would say, even though it's not a book, movie, or music. You know, any artistic performance. And, and You're the in other, the wheelhouse. The other movie um, that I would that I just loved. Um, um, and it is rel- it is related to um, my work issues is um, sorry to bother you which mm. came out um, last year I think it was um, or the year before and it's um, a dystopic futuristic um, movie about workers at a call center and then they try to unionized and they work for this like crazy Silicon Valley like completely like beautifully satirically performed um, like tech guy tech bro um, and things get a little crazy and wacky at the end but it the dystopia that it demonstrates really um, resonated with me and the power of sort of work workers coming together and their shared humanity and like standing up for better working conditions was something that I liked as well but it's very funny it's it's kind of out there not everybody would love it okay um, but it's a it's a really great movie All right sorry to bother you that's the theme of the uh, Miranda warnings when we try to get guests that's the first, <laughs> that's the first thing we say so we'll look for that so Hades town uh, play on yes. Broadway Yes. And there's a other... It's a uh, musical. A musical. Yes, okay. Yes. So... And sorry to bother you. So then it fits within right. the title, okay. right? Okay, so, there you go. And then... And sorry to bother you, I actually wrote a piece in Slate about oh, sorry to bother okay. you, about how sorry to bother you is like a perfect Labor Day movie. You know, you have like Groundhog Day movie, which is Groundhog Day coming up for Groundhog Day, and you have right. all the Christmas movies, and like, you know, we need to have our list of Labor Day movies. So in addition to sort of Norma Ray and whatever else, sorry to bother you is really I'm going to add that to my Labor Day list. Great. So, very good. Terry, thank you so much for being with us on Miranda Warnings. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.